Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Friday, January 6th, 2023. All right, so the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today. Uh, Putin, the Russian president, he has ordered a ceasefire for Christmas, Russian Orthodox Christmas, which is going to be this Saturday, January 7th. But the U.S. has dismissed this ceasefire as a cynical ploy. So the State Department said this on Thursday. They rejected Putin's order for a unilateral ceasefire in Ukraine for the Orthodox Christmas as a cynical ploy. So Putin ordered the ceasefire to take effect at noon on Friday And it would last through Saturday after a request from Patriarch Kirill, who is the head of the Russian Orthodox Church. So that would make it a 36-hour ceasefire. The Kremlin said in a statement, quote, based on the fact that a large number of citizens professing orthodoxy live in the combat areas, we call on the Ukrainian side to declare a ceasefire and give them the opportunity to attend services on Christmas Eve, as well as on the day of the nativity of Christ, end quote. Um, So instead of welcoming a potential pause in the fighting, the U.S. dismissed this order as an attempt by Putin to reinforce his troops. This is from State Department spokesman Ned Price. He said, quote, from our perspective, there is one word that best describes that, and it's cynical, end quote. So Price said that it was cynical because Russia continued its missile and drone attacks on Ukrainian civilian infrastructure on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. Price said, quote, so as you can tell, we have little faith in the intentions behind this announcement. Our concern is that the Russians would seek to use any temporary pause in fighting to rest, to refit, to regroup, and ultimately to reattack, end quote. So uh, Price His comments reflected what President Biden said in response. He said he thought it was an attempt by Putin to find oxygen, is how Biden put it. Although, I mean, it's worth pointing out that any relief Russian troops for Russian troops would also be a relief for the Ukrainian side, and and 36 hours isn't isn't very long. Um, And other Western governments made similar comments, including the EU, the European Council's President Charles Michael, He called Putin's order bogus and hypocritical. Uh, German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbach, she also slammed the ceasefire. Um, So this is the response from these Western governments, Uh, you know, for a potential pause in the fighting. This would be their only real kind of ceasefire that has taken place since Russia invaded. Uh, But instead of, you know, encouraging it and, and welcoming it, they're just totally dismissing it. Uh, And Ukrainian officials, they also rejected the ceasefire, although Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, he did not explicitly say that his forces would not follow the ceasefire. So only time will tell if Putin's order brings calm to Ukraine for 36 hours. Uh, So some of Zelensky's aides, uh, Podolyak, who was his advisor, he, you know, had some strong words about this and other Ukrainian officials And Zelensky said in his nightly address, quote, now they want to use Christmas as a cover to at least briefly stop the advance of our guys in the Donbass and bring equipment, ammunition and mobilized men closer to our positions. 
what will this bring? Just another increase in the death toll, end quote. So, you know, if that's what Zelensky's saying, I doubt that they're going to, um, you know, hold off on attacking Russia during this period. But who knows? You know, it would be um, good, I think, if if th- there was this ceasefire, even if it is just for a day and a day and a half, because, you know, if they kind of cooperate on this, you know, they could open the door for more cooperation Although, you know, as things stand, uh, the prospect of peace talks is very, very bleak. And, you know, one person that I saw welcome this call for a ceasefire, this order for a ceasefire, is Antonio Guterres, who is the UN Secretary General. He said, I think he said this before Putin wrote the order, because first it was the patriarch, uh, Kirill, who called for the Christmas truce, and then Guterres said that he would welcome any sort of ceasefire in Ukraine, which I think is the attitude people should have. Um, I don't know. I think this really says a lot, just just how uh, they quick they are to dismiss this. And I mean, I think it would be good for people living in the area to have a relief from the fighting. Of course, you know, what they say is if, if Russia wants a ceasefire, they have to withdraw. And of course, that would be the best thing if the war ends, but realistically, it's just not going to happen. So I, I think people should welcome, you know, this brief relief uh, and and hope that there's more more comes out of it. Uh, but the next one here, the U.S. is going to send Bradley fighting vehicles to Ukraine in a nearly three billion dollar arms package. So U.S. officials told the Associated Press on Thursday that. Uh, a new arms package for Ukraine is expected to be announced on Friday, worth nearly $3 billion, uh, $2.85 billion to be more precise. Uh, it's going to be formally announced on Friday, and it will mark, this is going to be the single largest arms package for Ukraine that the U.S. has pledged at one time. I mean, that's a lot of money. Uh, and it's going to include 50 of these Bradley fighting vehicles and they are designed to transport infantry troops with armored protection, and they are equipped with 25-millimeter gun. Pretty serious, heavy piece of equipment. And the White House confirmed that that they're going to be sending these uh, after President Biden spoke with Olaf Scholz, the German chancellor. In a statement on the call, the White House said that Berlin is going to be supplying Kiev with a similar piece of equipment, the German-made Martyr Infantry Fighting Vehicles. So the U.S. is going to send the Bradleys, Germany is going to send the Martyrs. And then this came after France announced that it's going to be sending Ukraine its own armored combat vehicles, the AMX-10RC, which are described as light tanks. And this marked the first Western-made armored vehicles that are going to be delivered uh, to Ukraine. And now, while this is a significant escalation in Western military aid for Ukraine, it does still fall short of the heavier tanks that Zelensky has been seeking, such as the U.S.-made Abrams, which is the U.S. main battle tank, and the German-made Leopards, which is their main battle tank. Zelensky was denied Abrams when he visited Washington, D.C., and a U.S. official told the Washington Post on Thursday that the Biden administration is still ruling out sending these Abrams. But again, they have showed us how they continue to escalate military aid. So it's definitely possible in the future. Uh, Zelushny, the head of the Ukrainian Armed Forces, says he needs you know hundreds and hundreds of tanks if, if Ukraine has any chance of pushing Russia out. Um, so this $2.85 billion weapons package, that, that might not be the final number. Sometimes these things change. 
It's going to be announced uh, again on Friday. It's also going to include Humvees, uh, other types of vehicles, and a large number of missiles and other ammunition. And the weapons are going to be paid for by funds that are already authorized by Congress. So it's not like this isn't adding to that huge amount that they've already authorized, which right now stands at $112 billion around there. Um, All right. So the next one here, Erdogan, at least somebody is uh, looking for peace in Ukraine. The Turkish president, he spoke with Russian President Vladimir Putin on Thursday, and he said Turkey was ready to mediate between Moscow and Kiev to reach a lasting peace in Ukraine. Uh, His Erdogan's office said after these two held a call, they said, quote, Erdogan stated that as Turkey, we are ready to facilitate and mediate the establishment of a lasting peace between Russia and Ukraine, end quote. So Erdogan told Putin that any offer for peace talks should also include a unilateral ceasefire to facilitate negotiations. Um, And this was before Putin signed the order for the Christmas truce. Uh, But again, it's not clear if it will hold as it has been rejected by Kiev. Now, while Erdogan is eager to mediate, chances of peace talks are slim as the warring sides have vastly different demands. According to the Kremlin, Putin said Russia is open to talks, but Kiev has to take into account Russia's annexation of the territories that it controls in Ukraine, in the Donbass and the oblasts of Kherson and Zaporozhye. Uh, The Kremlin said that in this call, uh, in their statement, they said, quote, Putin reiterated that Russia is open to a serious dialogue given authorities in Kiev meet demands that have repeatedly been put forward with due account taken of the new territorial realities, end quote. So that the territorial realities there, that refers to the annexation. And now the way it's worded, uh, it doesn't sound like they're saying Ukraine has to accept that as a precondition for talks um, because Russia uh, has been saying that they're open to talks and, and it's not that Ukraine needs to accept Russia's demands before the talks. With Ukraine, on the other hand, they're saying that Russia has to withdraw and face war crimes tribunals, you know, before um, anything, any talks can happen. So, and while Ukraine maintains its hardline position, the U.S. continues to escalate military aid for Kiev. And as I always have to mention, the only time peace talks appeared to have a chance was much earlier in the war. After Russian and Ukrainian negotiators met in Istanbul last March, but those negotiations were discouraged by the West and ultimately failed. And after they failed, Turkey, uh, again, who's been eager to to mediate a deal, said that there are some NATO members that want the war to to be prolonged uh, and that want to weaken Russia. Then a few days later, Lloyd Austin said, admitted that a U.S. goal in this war is to weaken Russia. All right, next article here. Uh, the U.S. A U.S. warship makes the first Taiwan Strait transit of 2023. So U.S. Navy guided missile destroyer sailed through the Taiwan Strait on Thursday in the first U.S. transit of the sensitive waterway of 2023. The U.S. Navy's 7th Fleet said the USS Chung-Hoon made the passage. So entering the new year, tensions between the U.S. and China over Taiwan are rising as Washington continues to escalate support for Taipei, which Beijing views as an affront to the one China policy. The U.S. Navy 
describes its passages through the Taiwan Strait as routine, but China views them as provocations. In recent years, the U.S. has stepped up its Taiwan Strait transits and has gotten some of its Western allies to do so as well, including France, Canada, and Britain. When announcing a Taiwan Strait transit took place in November, um, so this was Admiral Samuel Paparo. He's the commander of the U.S. Pacific Fleet. And in November, he said that the U.S. sends a warship through the Taiwan Strait about once a month. And the Seventh Fleet usually announces them and put out press releases, but they haven't put one out in a while. This is their first one since September. And in September, a Canadian frigate joined a U.S. Navy warship in the provocation. Uh, But we do know that a U.S. warship did sail through the Taiwan Strait in November, but the Seventh Fleet didn't put out a press release. So we don't know if they're reporting all of these is the point. Uh, that I'm trying to make in this article that I hope isn't too confusing. (laughs) Um, But anyway, uh, so China's military activity spiked in the region in 2022 in response to growing U.S. support for Taiwan. Of course, it really spiked after Nancy Pelosi uh, visited Taiwan in August. Okay, so the next one here, uh, this is just an article from the South China Morning Post that I thought was interesting, and it's related to the drama that's going on in the House right now. Um, I haven't been following it too closely, but I think there's been 11 votes now for House House Speaker and Kevin McCarthy. Just can't get the votes. But this article from the South China Morning Post points out that regardless of who becomes the House Speaker, Republicans plan to pursue priorities on China. And they already have... um, uh, legislation, you know, what, what they're calling ready to go legislation that the party's going to pursue as soon as it can. Uh, and there's a few bills related to China there. Um, nothing too major. One would ban the sale of petroleum products from the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve to China. Um, and the other one would kind of review uh, some just of China's economic, technological, and security progress and its competition with the U.S. But really the big thing is that they plan on on forming this new committee on China uh, that's probably going to put a lot of pressure on the Biden administration to be even more hawkish because despite this Republican talking point that Biden is, uh, you know, compromised by China in some way, that he's soft on China, he's actually been extremely hawkish and ramped up Uh, you know, the Trump administration's trade war and taking all these steps to increase support for Taiwan and build alliances in in the Asia-Pacific aimed at China. So with this new House, uh, Republican-dominated House, we should expect the U.S. to take an even harder line toward China. All right, the next one here, U.S.-Saudi tensions ease as military cooperation against Iran grows. So if you remember the Biden administration, they were not too happy with the Saudis after the OPEC plus oil cuts in early November. But it seems like, uh, you know, they're not all those threats that they made. uh, They're not going to deliver on. So tensions between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia have eased as the two countries are stepping up military cooperation against Iran. The Wall Street Journal reported on Thursday, citing U.S. and Saudi officials. The official said that the Biden administration has dropped its threats to retaliate against the against Saudi Arabia over the oil production cuts that were announced in October ahead of the U.S. midterm elections. So that's really why they were so furious and a lot of Democrats in Congress. 
Um, but while the Democrats lost the House uh, to the Republicans by a slim margin, their overall performance in the midterm elections was better than expected. So I guess they're not too sour at the Saudis anymore. President Biden vowed consequences for the oil cuts, but now has no intention on following through on the threat. That's according to these U.S. and Saudi officials. And the officials said that the U.S. and Saudi Arabia are moving ahead with new military and intelligence cooperation against Iran, as there is no hope that the nuclear deal known as the JCPOA is going to be revived. And if you remember, a video surfaced recently of President Biden saying that the Iran nuclear deal is dead but he's not going to announce it, he said. But he was being filmed, so he did announce it. Um, so since, you know, again, they make these oil cuts, we hear all this tough talk from the administration, from Democrats in Congress about Saudi, about the Saudis, but they didn't do anything. And in fact, they have done Riyadh a few favors since October, since these oil cuts, including by telling a New York court. So there was a lawsuit filed by the fiance of Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi writer and journalist that was killed, uh, I think, was it 2018 when he was killed at the Saudi consulate in Turkey? Um, but anyway, so U.S. intelligence concluded that MBS, the Saudi crown prince, ordered the killing of Khashoggi. Uh, Khashoggi's fiance filed a lawsuit against him. The Biden administration told a New York court that MBS should be shielded from the lawsuit because he's a head of state. And a judge agreed and the lawsuit was dismissed. So they helped them out there. And the administration also worked against a war powers resolution that would have ended U.S. support for the Saudi-led coalition fighting the Houthis in Yemen. The White House pressured Senate Democrats to vote against the bill and said that Biden would veto the legislation if it reached his desk. And unfortunately, you know, this was something we were really pushing. And, uh, you know, I told everybody to call their senators it seemed like we had a real shot with this thing. But, you know, Biden's opposition worked. Bernie Sanders, he planned to bring the resolution to the floor for a vote, but he caved. He reversed course and he didn't even put it up for a vote, which was just really shameful because it would have been really good to at least get get the vote on record. And even if Biden did veto it, if it did pass and it got to his desk, then it still would have sent a message to the Saudis to, you know, make a deal, make a lasting political settlement. Because as things stand right now, since the ceasefire expired in October, there haven't been Saudi airstrikes, but fighting on the ground keeps kind of increasing. So it can really escalate at any time. Uh, so, you know, they need to put pressure on the Saudis to get, make a deal happen. So again, even if Biden vetoed it, it if, if they knew Congress wasn't on board, it would have sent a message. And, you know, the Saudis aren't ones to really cave to U.S. pressure when it comes to certain things. But when it comes to this war, they are pretty much entirely reliant on U.S. maintenance for their air force and logistics support. Um, but anyway, where was I here? Uh, so that's another favor that they did. And this Wall Street Journal report said that Saudi officials also worked against the resolution, which, of course, they did. Um, so... Back in November, uh, you know, after the Biden administration was threatening all these consequences, the Saudis claimed that Iran was preparing to attack them. It was kind of strange. They said there was going to be an imminent attack on Saudi Arabia. Now, they also said they were going to attack northern Iraq, Iraqi Kurdistan, which Iran did, but they already did. They already were at the time. It's not like they predicted something that 
we didn't expect was going to happen. But they also said Iran was going to attack Saudi Arabia, which there was no indication that Iran was going to would do that uh, besides the Saudi claim. But in response, the U.S. flew warplanes uh, toward Iran and they later flew bombers into the region in a show of force. And these officials said that this cooperation was a turning point for the U.S.-Saudi relations after they soured in October. So I remember when this happened, and I think I said on this show that I bet it was kind of a Saudi effort to say, hey, you got to don't forget about us with Iran. You got to help us out with Iran. And and then it turns out that this is what you know set things back on track. And the U.S. often flies bombers into the Middle East in shows of force aimed at Iran when tensions are high. And Saudi warplanes typically escort them as they fly through Saudi airspace. And the Wall Street Journal report said that the Saudi warplanes escorted U.S. bombers several times last year. And the officials said that this sustained cooperation helped maintain the relationship through this political turmoil. So it was these bomber flights that really uh, said, you know what, we need these... uh, these Saudis, after all, we need to be able to fly our bombers through their airspace. And the U.S. has also been stepping up military cooperation with Israel. And the ultimate goal is to form a regional alliance against Iran with Israel and the U.S.'s Arab allies. Such cooperation has become easier since Israel signed normalization agreements with the UAE and Bahrain. But the Saudis have signaled that they're still a long way from signing a normalization deal, although they have quietly stepped up cooperation with Israel in some ways. Um, but I think this Netanyahu government this that are explicitly saying they're going to annex the West Bank are going to complicate their ties maybe with these Gulf countries. Uh, okay, so the next one, uh, this one is from Tolo News, which is an Afghan news site, English language news site. And it's interesting, it says that uh, residents in the Akin district in Afghanistan, which is in the uh, Nangarhar province, uh, they're still suffering the aftermath of when the U.S. dropped the Moab on Afghanistan, the, which is the you know the largest non-nuclear bomb that the U.S. has. And if you remember back in 2017. Trump dropped the Moab on uh, ISIS-K in in this region of Afghanistan, this eastern region. And at the time, the report said that, you know, it killed a bunch of ISIS fighters. There were some reports that a couple civilians were killed. Um, But this says that, you know, people that lived in the area are suffering, you know, long-term effects from it. Uh, And they said that the bomb actually destroyed 30 houses in the area. Uh, and some of them haven't been able to rebuild structurally. You know, when you drop a bomb this size, there's going to be, you know, issues like that. And also they're saying uh, it seems like it might have put something into the ground that's affecting their crops and, and people are getting sick. And, and uh, you know, they don't know exactly what's happening here because, um, of course, you know, the U.S. isn't going to look into it and take soil samples and study what they did to these people. But. Uh, it says that, you know, their harvests have been affected by the bombs. They're not eating good crops. Uh, there's diseases among the re- residents, livestock and agriculture. Um, so uh, it's just a lasting impact. And, you know, you think about uh, all the places that the U.S. has bombed over the past 20 years and the things that they've put into the environment by just dropping so many munitions on on these countries. Um 
you know, I know in Fallujah, there's, there's tons of birth defects and it's really awful. Uh, the, the after effects of, of all these bombs that, that the U S has dropped. Um, I just left up also, uh, that the U S is against normalizing with Assad. You know, they had more to say about it on Thursday. So I just left up the article from yesterday. Cause I think that's pretty important. This, this, just the fact that Turkey and Syria might be trying to work things out and the U S is opposing it. Um, but anyway, that's it for the news. Go check out our viewpoints. Uh, we have a good run from judge Knapp titled a government that assaults Liberty about the FBI. We've one link to one from Kit Clarenberg over at the Gray Zone about a British run, how British run spy tech fuels Ukraine proxy war, putting civilians at risk. One from Wayman Chen over at the Mises Institute about the uh, the war in Yemen. Despite broad opposition in Congress, U.S. policy on the war in Yemen is unchanged. Uh, we have one from Ramsey Baroud about the Netanyahu's new government, about how it accentuates, accentuates West's, the West's hypocrisy. And it really does. Uh, you know, the fact that they're supporting a government like that, they have all these things to say. Um, and then our spotlight is by Dan McKnight over at the Libertarian Institute. Will the war party wield the speaker's gavel? And it's about, you know, the speaker votes going on right now. Um, but that's everything. That's it for the week. Um, I hope everybody has a good weekend. You could always support us, antiwar.com slash donate, share the show, tell your friends, do all that good stuff. Um, that's it for me for today. I'll talk to you after the weekend. Thanks for listening.